This, uh, this week, as I was thinking about this passage, it made me think about uh, World, World War II, as I often do in my leather chair and pipe. Um, you know. And I was thinking about, there, there's so many parallels. I, I feel like sometimes, at least part of what was happening maybe in the Lord allowing World War II to be a thing is that um, it, I, I feel like it's, it's a... Uh, a, a picture, an earthly picture of something that, you know, it, it doesn't track on all levels. It's not a perfect metaphor, but that's playing out on a cosmic scale. And it made me think about that today. Um, you know, in World War II, you had uh, D-Day was one of these battles that was the, like, changing the, the entire war. And, uh, you know, these, these couple battles that happened while the war was still raging decided the war. And it made it to where the allies were going to win. And still, there was a lot of bloodshed between those decisive moments like D-Day and the, the actual last battle of World War II. And so I was going through this week thinking about that, and I found these, uh, there's this collection of letters from the front lines. And, and I'm going to read one of these letters to you of a soldier riding home to his girlfriend and I want you to try to think about, you know, if, if what we believe is true about the world and the current state and what's happening is that we are in a spiritual war. We are constantly on the front lines of a spiritual war, and we will be until Jesus returns, um, until he returns and wins the last battle and sets everything right and makes all things new. So as I read this letter, I want you to see if you experience any of the things, um, maybe on an actual or spiritual level, that um, you can identify with this man. This was written July 22nd, 1944 in France, post D-Day. And he says, darling, yesterday I had to visit all the units again. The regiment is in contact with the enemy, so such trips always have their skin-prickling moments. I got back pretty tired just in time to get a phone call about a fine young soldier who had simultaneously received word that his sister, an army nurse, and his brother, a flyer, had been killed in the South Pacific, and that his remaining brother had been critically wounded. While up there, I frankly nearly had the pants scared off me with shelling and mortar fire. I got back at midnight, and after a day like that, I feel my years. The boys have had constant contact with the enemy since D-Day. You always hear of another friend killed, and you go on about your business with a little more emptiness, a little more tiredness, a little more hatred of everything having to do with war. There's a certain cemetery where some of my closest friends in the division are buried. I saw it grow, shattered bodies lying there waiting for graves to be dug. Now it is filled. In a few seconds, I'll hear the crunch of bombs from our planes, a good night kiss for the Nazis. And there they go right now. The war news is good, but we're still fighting. I suppose people at home are elated. The boys up front are still in their foxholes. I'll try to write every day or so, so take care of yourself. I'm fine. Love, John. So Merry Christmas. Do you hear in that things that you can identify with? Especially the line he says, the boys have had constant contact 
with the enemy since D-Day. Like the war is over, y'all. Jesus has won. We have won. And yet we are still in this place where it is really painful. And we experience all kinds of suffering. And I'm going to try to look at the back wall because when I make eye contact with certain people, I'm going to lose it because I know you are in it. You're in it. And it is so hard. And yet, it's good news. We have won. And so Advent, we're waiting for Jesus to be revealed. We're not waiting for Jesus to show up because he's here. He's always here. But we are waiting for him to come in a certain way to win the last battle and make all things new. And we, as this passage refers to us, are the armies of the Lord. If you, if you want to do a, uh, maybe a word search or a, a study through the New Testament, and you'll see how many times Paul and others make reference to us as being in a spiritual war, as fighting against the enemy, um, as being soldiers of the Lord. We are on the front lines, on mission with him, fighting the enemy, setting prisoners free, waiting for the war to end. And so I'm going to go ahead and call up whoever's reading our scripture this morning. Lindsay, come on up. Um, and what I want to encourage us, this is another longer passage. Um, we're in the second half of chapter 19 and then chapter 20. And so as Lindsay reads this passage, a couple things I want to let you know. First, this is the passage where uh, it's this thousand-year period is talked about. Um, there are a lot of people who really love Jesus and are very smart and think differently about what that means, the thousand years. But here's what I'm going to put forth, um, is that this, again, like the rest of Revelation, is a very symbolic amount of time. It's, it's long, it's significant, but it's also perfect. And what we're going to hear in this passage is a couple different perspectives on the last battle. It's not two different battles. It's a couple different perspectives as John's seeing these different angles on what has already happened. Um, this, this part you're going to hear about Satan being bound with a chain, um, that's what's already happened when Jesus has come and finished his ministry on earth before he was resurrected. Um, and then now we're in this in-between, and then you're going to hear a couple different perspectives on this last battle. And so um, what I'm going to ask Lindsay to do is dramatically reenact. No. What I'm going to ask Lindsay to do is just, um, y'all, while Lindsay's up here, we may do this one day, but um, we were Young Life leaders together. And one night there was a competition, a karaoke duet competition, and I, I would say that we probably won. Yeah. Um, but that's not what's happening today. <laughs> but maybe one day. Um, I'm going to ask Lindsay to read this kind of slower. And I want you all to just close your eyes and just picture this. Because remember, these are visions. And so I want you, instead of trying to reason and figure everything out, just let, let these visions wash over you the way that they're intended. Revelation 19, 11 through 2015. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, 
and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who, to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Father, you are awesome. You are mighty. 
You are holy, you are righteous, you are pure. You are the God of justice. You are the God of mercy. You are the faithful one. You are love. You are higher than we could ever fully comprehend. And yet you have told us about yourself through your son and you've told us about yourself through your word and you've given us your Holy Spirit and you've given us one another and you are speaking to us and you are living in us and you are changing us and you are moving in us and in this world and you are calling us and you are maturing us and you are moving us out into this war with you, this mission of love, this fighting for the souls of people. And so now we come and we submit ourselves to you. Forgive us for trying to be our own gods. Forgive us for trying to live on our own and decide what our purpose is and decide what we think about you and decide what we think about ourselves in ways that do not align with what is true and with what is right and with what is good. And so I pray that you would come today, that you would quiet our hearts before you, that you would open our minds, open our hearts, and that you would speak to us and that we would be changed. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so uh, last week we talked about waiting to be married. This week is waiting for the war to end. And uh, as we walk through, we're not really going to walk through this passage verse by verse, but as we walk through this passage, we're going to be looking at um, this Jesus who we follow and this war as it plays out. And then that's going to inform us about how we see ourselves today on the front lines still engaged in this conflict. So first, um, you know, John, this, this chapter, this passage starts with John saying, then I saw heaven opened. And what he sees and what he's about to see is this deep encouragement because when he sees heaven opened, what he's seeing is not this picture of just a Jesus who is going to come sometime in the future. He's seeing now. He's seeing the reality that heaven is in, in this way an alternate universe that is always existing. It's, it's right here. It's here. It's not some faraway place. And Jesus is not far away. He lives in us. He lives with us. He is present and working in this world. And so when he sees, John sees heaven opened and he sees one who is seated on this white horse, it is this deep encouragement because it's not something that's going to happen later. The events, maybe some of these events are what's coming later, but the one who is seated on the white horse, the king who is making righteous war, who is fighting for his people and, and alongside his people, this is now. He is the one who has already come. He is the one who is here, and he's the one who will come again. And so first, about this, our King Jesus. For those of us who are on the front lines, for those of us who are suffering, we need to see our King. We need to see our commanding officer, as it were, and he is not behind a desk. He is out on the field of battle. He has been there before us, and he, is, he has gone deeper and further into the struggle than we ever will, and we need to see him and be encouraged. So we see this king on a white horse, a holy king who's going to war, 
And he first comes out to war in Matthew's gospel in chapter 4. It says that Jesus was led out into the wilderness, into this desert wasteland to be tempted by Satan. And this was the, the little battle that was a microcosm of this entire war. This is where Jesus goes out and he is, he is hungry, he is thirsty, and the enemy comes and is tempting him. And he's telling him, you don't have to suffer. You can be like God and you can have everyone worship you. You can be worshiped and not have to experience any suffering. And what does Jesus do? You know, this is reminiscent of something that we've already seen. This is reminiscent of the enemy's interaction with the first humans, right? This is Satan coming into the garden to Adam and to Eve and saying, hey, you don't have to listen to God. You don't have to experience anything you don't want to experience. You can have everything your way. And Adam and Eve say, that sounds good. Okay, <laughs> God said this, but I feel this way, and I want this thing, and I think this is better, so I'm going to disobey God and move away, and the enemy celebrates as sin, this disease of sin is ushered into all of creation and taints everything. Okay, now we sort of have a, a reversal happening, because Jesus is out in the wilderness to be tempted, and when the enemy comes with this same temptation... Jesus says, here's what the word of God says. And then it's like, uh-oh, this isn't going to go down the way that this first one went down. Like there's a new sheriff in town, and the enemy is losing his power. And he tempts Jesus three times in the desert, and Jesus all three times says, hey, the word of God says this, like God is my Lord, and what he says is truth, and what he says is good for me. It's the reversal of everything that Adam and Eve said and did. And he walks out of the desert victorious. The enemy flees. It's like when James says, um, you know, he stood before the enemy, and the enemy fled. And so Jesus walks out victorious, declaring victory. The first thing we hear him say about his ministry is, hey, repent, turn back to God because the, the kingdom of heaven is here. The king is here. The king is back. The ruler of this world has no claim on me. He is fleeing because he's afraid and he knows that he is about to be defeated. And so we have this king on a white horse who has already come, who has already come in the flesh and has dealt a decisive blow to the enemy. And of course, even more so on the cross. But what we, hear, what we have here in uh, chapter 20, this language about the chain, the angel coming with this big chain and binding the dragon who is Satan, um, this is reference to what Jesus has done in his earthly ministry. Luke 11, 21 and 22 says this. Jesus is telling people about what's happening. And he says, when a strong man who's fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. The strong man is Satan. Um, the palace is the kingdom of this world, the world as it is now, full of sin, and his goods are the souls of humanity, his slaves. And then Jesus continues, but when one stronger than he, that is King Jesus, attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor and plunders his house. 
And in other passages where he tells the same story, they talk about being bound. You cannot go into a strong man's house and steal all of his stuff unless you first tie him up. And what, what is being told to us in this passage, what Jesus is trying to say in this passage from the Gospels, is when Jesus came and died on the cross for the sins of his people, he took away all the armor and all the strength of the strong man. Because the strength of the strong man was the sin of God's people. How could these people be with God? How could they not be destroyed and swept away with the wicked if they are full of sin? No one could ever see this coming. No one could ever see the gospel coming that Jesus came with the answer. It's that I'm going to die in their place. And when I die a death for them as the only righteous one to ever live, to take all of their sin into me and have that be dealt with, have the wrath of God fall on me on the cross, you, Satan, now have no power over the people of God anymore. There is nothing that they can do. There is nothing that you can do. You are bound. It's like going into a strong man's house, tying him up, and then right in front of his eyes, stealing everything, walking out with armloads of treasures, and he is powerless to do anything about it. And if you want to amen, that's a good place for that. <laughs> Jesus has chained up the dragon and is stealing all of his treasure, the souls of men and women. And in this Jesus, as we continue to see who he is, on his head are many crowns. He is the rightful ruler of every nation, principality, anything that's ever had a ruler. He is the rightful ruler of it over all of creation, over all of the universe, over all of the cosmos. And so he is coming back. He is marching into war to take back what is his from the one who has kept everything in darkness, who has enslaved everything to destruction and death. This king is coming back with all of the rightful crowns, all of the rightful authority of every place in all of the cosmos, saying, I'm the ruler of that place, and I will have it back now. And he has eyes of fire. He sees everything. His vision pierces through every locked door and all deception. He will not be deceived. He will not be deterred. His eyes are full of fire, which is the love for his father and the love for his people and the love for his creation. And they are burning with intensity and he will not be derailed. And he is wearing a robe dipped or dyed, covered in blood. He has shed his blood all alone out on the field of battle. He went into the stronghold of the enemy to give himself to be slaughtered so that we could have life. So he knows, he knows what it is like to be on the front lines of battle where you are and where I am and where we live our lives. He knows what it is like to be tempted. He knows what it is like to feel shame heaped upon him. He knows what it's like to feel the impact of sin, not because he has sinned, but because all of our sin has been poured not on his shoulders, but into his very being. He was separated from his father, with whom he had been in the tightest, deepest union for all eternity, so that we would not have to experience that forever. So he knows, he knows. 
And it says that he will rule, but that word really means to shepherd. He will shepherd with a rod of iron. He is coming not just to win the battle, but he's coming to stay and coming to shepherd all of his people and not with a rod of wood that will rot and wear out and weaken, but a rod of iron that will be forever. He will always shepherd his people. There will never be an end to his loving authority and rule and guidance and protection in the lives of his people. So who is this God? This passage tells us these things that he's called. He's called faithful and true. He's called the word of God. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And he also has a name written on him that no one knows. He is all of these things and he's so much more. The fullness of which we will not comprehend. That's why he also has this name that no one knows except himself. Because there's, there's something about a name that means that you can have a claim on somebody or you can fully comprehend or wrap yourself around somebody. And he's like, no, I've given you names to know me by, but you will never fully know the fullness of my full name because no one has any claim on me and I cannot be fully comprehended by you. You are deeply loved, but you have no claim on me. So that is who this Jesus is. Our King Jesus who has gone before us in the battle, who leads us in a battle, and who will finish this battle. And that's where we go next, is to look with John to behold the victory of our God and his Jesus and the armies of heaven. And this is just amazing. He says uh, in verse 17 in chapter 19, then I saw an angel standing in the sun. So uh, what are you going to do to this guy <laughs> to intimidate him? He's standing in the sun. And what is he doing? He is calling with a loud voice to the birds of heaven saying, come and get it. There's about to be a feast because there's about to be a lot of corpses on the ground. And why does he say this? Well, the next thing we see, the next thing John sees is the enemy, the two beasts that we heard about in Revelation 13 with all of those who set themselves up in opposition to Jesus and his people are marching to make war. And so when the angel sees this coming, he's like, hey, birds, you may want to come over here because it's about to go very poorly for this attacking army. It says in verse 19, 19, I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against King Jesus and his armies. In, in chapter 27 through 9, it talks about seeing Satan deceiving many people and gathering them for battle, marching to surround the saints of Jesus to destroy them. And what happens? It's over very quickly. I don't even know if you could call this a war or a battle. Because what happens in the, in the first picture is that the beasts are basically choke slammed by the angels into the eternal lake of fire. God, Jesus doesn't have to do anything. The angels, maybe the one who was standing in the sun, <laughs> was getting fired up. Um, it's just, it says they seize them. That, that word means you just take them by force and throw them into the lake of fire. It's not even a competition. And then all of those who were with them were slain by the sword, which is the word of God, the sword that's coming from the mouth of our King Jesus. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says this about the word of God. The word of God pierces to the division of soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
we can fool ourselves about our intentions. We can fool other people about our intentions, but we cannot fool God. And when his word comes out, it moves and works in such a way that it knifes between soul and spirit, even that deeply into a person, and discerns our deepest, truest, most deeply held thoughts and intentions of our heart. And when you think about it like that, why wouldn't there be a field full of corpses in this battle when the whole reason that these people are marching to battle to fight against Jesus and his people is they're saying, I want to be divorced from everything that has to do with you, God. And we don't often, people don't often say it that forcefully. Some people do. But in the deepest recesses of our souls, we are screaming that. There is no neutrality. There is only service to King Jesus or service in opposition to King Jesus. And when the people who are shaking their fists and crying out, I want to be divorced from the one who is life, then all that's left is death. And so the dragon is also choke slammed into the lake of fire. And before they can do anything, those enemies who surround the people of Jesus are burned up with fire from heaven. So John gets this picture of a very decisive, very quick victory. And so what happens to all of those who have made themselves enemies of King Jesus? Well, going back to the World War II motif, it's something like the Nuremberg trials on a cosmic scale. We get this, this last passage of our um, of the passage here, these last few verses, starting in uh, chapter 20, verse 11, and we see this scene before the great white throne, and books are opened. Um, and at the end of World War II, we had what was referred to as the Nuremberg Trials, where the world convened a court to try uh, those associated with the Nazis for war crimes, to see, like, hey, these things that have taken place are heinous, and, and you, people need to stand trial for this. And so there was this court convened by the Allied forces, and it was very important to them that it was not a kangaroo court, that it was an actual trial with evidence, because they didn't wanna, they're like, you know, if, if this is just a show, then we're no better than, than they are. But this is an actual trial of justice, where we are gonna hear evidence, and we are gonna, uh, see cases presented, and we are going to try every single one of these war criminals. And so this is from Justice Robert Jackson's opening statement for the Nuremberg trials. He said, what makes this trial significant is that these prisoners represent sinister influences that will lurk in the world long after their bodies have returned to dust. Vessels of terrorism and violence, of arrogance and cruelty of power, cursing this world, generation after generation, crushing its personhood, destroying its homes, impoverishing its life. Civilization can afford no compromise with the forces which would gain renewed strength if we deal ambiguously or indecisively with these men. And that's what's being said at the end of all things, at the end of human history, for there to be a place, for there to be an existence, for there to be a heavenly realm and a kingdom of God, there is 
no ambivalence. There is no ambiguity, no indecisiveness, no compromise with the forces of evil that oppose God, who is life, who is love, who is goodness, who is righteousness. There will be no compromise. And listen to what he says later in this opening statement. While a few defendants may show efforts to make specific exceptions to the policy of Jewish extermination, I have found no instance in which any defendant opposed the policy itself or sought to revoke or even modify it. While there were differences among the defendants, there is not one of them who has not echoed the rallying cry of Nazism, Germany awake, Jews perish. And what he is saying there is the same thing is going to be said to every man and woman who has ever drawn a breath on this earth, is that there may be degrees of differences in the evil that has been perpetrated by each one of us as we have rejected God and sought to live in defiance of him. You know, some people, it's, it's quiet. Some people, it's loud. And maybe we could all agree how terrible their behavior was or their actions were. But at the end of the day, no matter how quiet, no matter how loud the opposition to the rule of King Jesus is for every single individual, there has not been any who are opposed to him, who are opposed to the policy itself of rebelling against the God who created them, who is holy, holy, holy. And while there are differences among men and women in this world in how they oppose Jesus... There is not one of them opposed to him who has not echoed the rallying cry of the dragon in their hearts. I am king, down with you. And so the books will be opened. You know, like these war criminals who were tried in the Nuremberg trials, 199 people were tried for things that had happened. Some of those things happened a decade before this. They thought these actions were buried for a decade and now they're brought out on the world's stage for everyone to see and hear. Everyone in the world, it was exposed before all of them. And think about what they were saying to themselves. Think about the life they lived. Think about where they found themselves for that decade leading up to these trials. There were 199 of them tried. They were surrounded by each other. The things that they were thinking and saying and doing were normal. And the things that they were thinking, saying, and doing were wicked and heinous and evil and wrong. You know, Adolf Hitler and several of his highest up officers uh, escaped earthly justice because they committed suicide. And that deeply troubled many people who had been affected and suffered under their regime. But for all of those who are opposed to King Jesus, there is no escape. This moment is coming. This moment is coming where the books will be opened and it says every person who has ever lived will be judged each according to what they have done. Lord, have mercy. What hope is there for me? What hope is there for you if the books of my life that are meticulously kept are opened before the, the righteous judge of all eternity? What hope is there? And the hope is that my little biography is not the only book that was opened. It says in this passage, books were opened and then another book was opened, 
which is the book of life, which we've heard about before in this book of Revelation, the Lamb's book of life, and everyone whose name is written in it lives. And so when these books are opened, all of us would find ourselves deserving death. Yet, for everyone who is in Christ, their name is also written in this other book that has been opened, that Jesus has said, everyone who is in this book, their sin is covered. Their sin is covered. And they have nothing to fear. They do not fear the second death, for it holds no, no sway over their lives. Praise God. And so now, lastly, as we see Jesus, we see the victory in him. Now we can look at the armies of heaven now on the front lines in the spiritual war. And it says this about us, because that's who this is talking about. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following their Jesus on white horses. This is an interesting picture, because what is being portrayed is priests without any weapons on a war horse. Weaponless priests riding on war horses into battle following their King Jesus. And that is who we are. And that is where we are. Is we are wearing these vestments of priesthood given to us by Jesus, white and pure, because we have his righteousness, because he has taken all of our sin upon himself and given us his righteousness, So we are clean, we are made new, and we are riding with him, following him, which we know where he goes. He goes down. He goes down to give himself away so that others can have life, and we are following him in that as well. And we don't have a sword of our own because we have the sword of his mouth. We don't need a weapon because the weapon that we have is the sword that he has, which is the word of God. And so we are sent out into the world. Remember Revelation 12, 11, it says, uh, we conquer by the blood of the lamb and the testimony of the saints. That because of what he's done, we are now out in the world as priests at war with the enemy, not with people. We're not at war with people. As Paul says, we're at war with the principalities and the powers of darkness that fight against people. But we're at war for people for their freedom and for their life. And so we are armed with the sword of his mouth, his word, and we bring the good news of the gospel to this lost and hurting world and say, be reconciled to God. You don't have to be afraid of him anymore because he's made a way for you to come home. And you don't have to die. You don't have to serve in slavery in the army of the enemy. You can come and have life with the father who made you because of what our King Jesus has done. And I found another letter written after D-Day by another uh, soldier on the front lines. And he's writing about these officers, these commanding officers that he has watched how they live their lives. And this is, a, this is like a, a call to us as the people of God. He says this, there are some officers who are known only to few and ask no publicity. They live in hell and they stay there days, weeks, months until they're killed. There are only a few like them. They teach men, they feed them, they protect them, they lead them sooner or later into battle, into the jaws of hell. These men love with a kind of love that exists no place but on the battlefield, and it is never talked about. These gents go for days without sleep, give away their clothes, 
go without food, keep going when they're sick, perform miraculous feats when they're wounded, and take the suicidal details rather than ask someone else to do it. They're never afraid, or at least they appear to never be afraid, and they're never cold, they never complain. They spend all their time trying to think of ways to help their men and to save them. And then listen to what this man says. Surely they must be Jesus' people, because he was like that. They probably swore and drank and did a lot of other things, but I am sure that Jesus got them when they left this earth. Y'all, that's us. Like, that's, that's you. That's what you are doing now. I'm watching it happen. As I watch you live lives, you, you are these commanding officers. You are walking into battle every single day, and it's a quiet battle that most of the time nobody sees. But you are in it. And there's a different way that you are in it. There's a different way that you experience this world than everyone around you. And you're not perfect. You don't have to be. Because he is. And he is making you new. You're not making yourself new. And you don't have to be perfect for God to love you or approve of you or use you. That's not what he says. You are being made new by the one who has bought you and cleansed you and made you his. And he is using you in this world for good. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are reconciled. And now you are fighting in prayer. You're fighting to help people remember. You're fighting to help people know the truth and the good news that Jesus loves them. You're fighting against the deceptions of the enemy as he speaks lies into the ears of people all around you. You are coming with a voice of truth, with the sword of his mouth, saying, no, 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 that's not who you are. That's not who you are, and that's not who God is. And as you and I do this, um, we will be weakened. And thank God that we don't have to go this alone. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says this. We don't have a great high priest or a king or commanding officer who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who knows. He's lived it all to deeper degrees of suffering and temptation. So let us with confidence run to the throne of grace that we may receive help and mercy and grace in time of need. So what we're going to do today as we come to the table, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, these letters that you have here, try to get a, something looking a little World War II-ish. Um, I want you to write a letter from the front lines to God. And you tell him what it's like now, where you are. And you tell him what you need. And you tell him whatever's on your heart. And then when you come up to take communion, I invite you to just leave it, leave it up here. And know, as you take these elements, as you have a tangible reminder of his love for you, that he's not far off. He is with you in the trenches. He has been in those trenches before you. He's been in trenches you will never see, and he's with you now, and he's coming again. And so this meal we celebrate, Jesus says, hey, I want you to celebrate this meal until I return because it is a strengthening meal. It is a resupply from home base. When you're out on the front lines, this meal will remind you of what's true in very tangible, powerful ways. And I am in this meal. I am in this meal to strengthen and empower you. 
The night that he was betrayed, he had his disciples with him in the upper room celebrating the Passover feast. He broke the bread and he said, take this. This is my body that's given for you. It's broken for you. Feed on my broken body. And then after the meal, he took the cup, he poured the wine out and said, this is my blood that's poured out for you. This is the blood of a new covenant. This is the wine of a new covenant. And this new covenant is, I've already paid for your sin. You will not have to pay for your own sin. You have new life in me. So eat and drink this meal in remembrance of me. And even though they were eating a Passover meal, any detail about the Passover lamb was left out of the gospel accounts because Jesus is the Passover lamb whose blood was shed so that we could have life and not be swept away in the wrath of God. So come, come to this table. If you are a sinner who knows you are in desperate need of grace and that Jesus is your savior, come and and taste and see and be nourished by his love for you. And when you're ready to do that, um, you can come up to the kneelers, you can come up to the community tables. Uh, We do have gluten-free bread. Let us know if you need that. And also um, at the kneelers, if you, if you want prayer, just raise a hand and ask for prayer. But at the kneelers, when you're ready, just put your hands out and you'll be served the elements. And at the table, we'll take them together.